0: The expulsive power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a great Savior means no fear. So uh, it is my delight to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning, James Jarden. James is, as uh, John was praying a moment ago, one of the uh, RUF campus ministers within the Nashville Presbytery. It's about a half dozen of those, two of whom, a third of whom, are in the room right now. Will Cody there at APSU and James down the road at Western Kentucky. Uh, I'm gonna share with you just a couple of of facts about James that you might be interested in knowing. Um, These are true. I told him I was gonna make some things up, but actually these are so good I didn't even have to make them up. Um, So first off, he he was born in Italy. Born in Italy, the son of an Air Force officer uh, he before he went to the August Institution of Covenant Theological Seminary, and graduated therein. Uh, he is a was a graduate of Valdosta. 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 Is that an onion? <laughs> anyway, I know, I know. That was a joke. <laughs> anyway, um, he graduated from whatever that place is called. <laughs> as a music major right but specific focus in uh vocal performance yeah so i think we can bring him back right for a wholly, wholly different reason some, sometimes so uh i literally expect to hear great things from you this morning so james come on up thank you
1: well thank you for the warm welcome if i haven't met you yet i'd love to meet you before the before the morning is over um it's my privilege to open up God's Word this morning for you. Uh, and we're going to be in Numbers 21. I think it's on the screen and stuff behind me. But um, if you want to turn there in your Bible, that's where we're going to be. And uh, what I wanted to do when I was uh, given the opportunity to come preach here this morning was I thought it'd be kind of a cool opportunity to give you a taste of what we've been doing this spring with our large group uh, at Western Kentucky University. All right. This, uh, this spring, we'll be going through pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so we're going to this this really kind of strange story. If you're not like totally churched and you hear this story, like this is a really weird weird story so like if you've been in your chur- in the church all your life and this is old news to you try to step into the shoes of someone who is like wait what as they hear this story unfolding so it's, 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 it's it involves history with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness it involves snakes which I know is kind of like fun for some people and like I'm already uncomfortable for others and it involves miraculous healing so there's there's incredible stuff that's remarkable in this story And as strange as the story might seem on the surface, there is a lot for us to gain from understanding it. Um, One of the reasons I love the Old Testament personally is because we keep learning about the Israelites, and the more we understand about them, the more that we... Grow to to get what's going on in their history. We start to see ourselves in the way that they act. We start to feel how real these people were. They respond in ways that are very relatable to us, even though it was something that happened so long ago. They respond to God with the feeling of a song that's going to really date me, and like some of the kids are going to be like, "What?" and the older people be like, "Yeah, that song's not that great." but y'all remember? Y'all remember Janet Jackson, like sister of mega pop star? Uh, you know, she has a song. Is, what have you done for me lately right right so there's there's that's the feeling of how God's people relate to their savior often so many of them, many of us in this room have experienced God blessing us in one way or another in our lives. And in fact, if I were to ask probably any one of you in this room, how has God blessed you? And you would probably start to name off, this happened, this happened, this happened. You could start telling me the story of God working in your life. But the way things work is, time passes, difficult things come along, and the song starts to play in the back of our head. It's like the blessings that we have received, we received them and we can name them, But it's like they don't matter anymore. So we grumble kind of like the people in this story do, and grumbling is kind of like when you talk underneath your breath, you know. Uh, my kids are uh, 11 and 8 years old, and they're young enough now that they don't have the guile, like the pretense to like hide it. So sometimes we tell them that they need to do something, you know, clean your dish or something like that, and, just, I'm to clean my dish. and like, we go, hey, 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 that's, that's not okay, don't do that. And we think we're older so we know better, but the fact of the matter is, is we just get better at hiding it as we get older. We're, we're, even if we don't say it out loud, we're sure as heck thinking it. It's going on inside of us too, this talking under your breath spirit, this grumbling. We're not so different. And it might not seem that serious. It's just talking under your breath. It's just a little bit of complaining. What's the big deal? Well, this text helps us interpret why this is serious. And it helps us see um, what, God, uh, what God's people experience then is something that we also experience here and now. Because we too get dissatisfied with what God has provided for us. We, too, experience that. And through a kind of short-sightedness, we treat the ways that God has demonstrated his love for us with contempt. Why doesn't God do this in my life? Why doesn't God do that in my life? Doesn't he care about what I want? That's the kind of things we start to think. So this morning, let's risk letting down our guard a little bit. And consider how even here and now we're not so different from the Israelites thousands of years ago in the desert. And then what we're going to do is we're going to behold how God has provided what we need most himself. So here's the, here's the outline that I want to give you. If you're like scribbling notes is where I'm going. I've got five points this morning. And um, I'm going to give you a recap first. I'm going to give you context. So first I'm going to give you context, which is God provides for his people. That's the first point. Second point is, God's people rebel against him. That'll be verse 5. And then we'll look at, God sends serpents, that's verse 6. God's people confess and cry out, verse 7. And then the fifth point, finally, God delivers them. And that's going to be verse 8, and then we're going to tie in John 3, the passage you heard read earlier um, during the time of prayer. So, I'm going to read the scripture after I give you the context, and uh, and then we'll roll from there, okay? So, let's hit it. Here's the context we need to know the context because we're kind of parachuting into the into a narrative and not in the beginning of the narrative like it's things that have been happening so it's important to mark out some of these things that orient us in this text uh, a lot of really trustworthy scholars believe that Moses wrote the book of numbers okay so the author of this book is the same guy that God did signs and wonders through to free his people from slavery in Egypt now This is the same rabble of people who are former slaves who have been completely dependent upon God to guide them and provide for them in the desert. You know, much like sheep would be depending on the shepherd. And so quick recap of what God has done to demonstrate with signs and wonders that he is the God of his people so far. He has freed them from generations of brutal oppression and slavery with multiple miracles. You remember the plagues. You remember the parting of the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea on dry land. He's provided food for them in this mysterious thing called manna, which is a really fun word to really know a little bit more about because the Hebrew literally means, what is it? And that's the same reaction that all of God's people have when they're getting it. They're like, oh, what is it? I don't know, but it's breakfast and lunch and dinner. So he has provided food for his people in the wilderness. And God has provided water for them in the desert from a rock that he told Moses to strike in a story just before this. And so during the day, we just sang about it in the hymn. He he leads them in the daytime in a pillar of cloud to give them shade. And at night he leads them in a pillar of fire to light their way. So he's present with them. They are freed, they are fed. They are watered. They are guided. And this is where we are as we pick up where God's people are in this story, which sounds great, right? Yeah, well, things don't stay great, as you know. They all go sideways, catted, wampus, pear-shaped, you get it. So let's read the story, and then I'll pray, and we'll keep unpacking it, okay? So I'm going to read Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I encourage you to listen carefully as this is God's word. Here's the word of the Lord. the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he has revealed to us in the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are not so different from the people so long ago who walked with you in the wilderness. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see how we share that common humanity with them. Uh, Not only in being flesh and blood, but in the ways that we are vulnerable to rebellion and sin against you. Uh, God, help us to turn. I pray that this story this morning would sink down deep into our hearts as seed in good soil, that we would not only see our own sin particularly, but we would see how you are an even greater uh, Savior who provides exactly what we need when we need it. So, Holy Spirit, work through me this morning and pray that you would help the things that I say to be uh, helpful to your people who are gathered here. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Um, May you get all the glory, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, this story is wild, okay? So if you've been in church all your life, try to, like, like put, put that thought on the back burner and try to enter into this fresh, all right? Let's take it a small bite at a time. So. How do God's people respond to the ways that he has demonstrated his love for them? When we think about how many stories go, God has, developed, has delivered his people from slavery, and he has soundly defeated their oppressors um, with the plagues and with the parting of the Red Sea, and we might expect, and they lived happily ever after, right? World credits. But that is how fantasy stories end, and this story takes place in real space and time, and we know that things are Always more complicated than that with the human heart. So God's people begin to get impatient with the way that God is leading them. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. They speak against their leader and that God himself, they speak against the leader that God himself has chosen and appointed over them. They speak against Moses and they speak against the Lord too. And if you listen, you can hear familiar echoes of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God's kindness was first. His kindness was first to them. He gave them life. He was present with them. He gave them everything they could eat in the garden. And he even protected them by warning them that they would die if they ate from one tree out of all of them. He cared for them. And then the serpent uses this one boundary that God has given them to lie to Adam and Eve and to twist what God has said so that they would distrust him. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God and you know how the story goes. Sin comes into the world. And all manner of pain and suffering with it. So profoundly that you and I are born with this rebellious nature of our first parents in us. And we are unable to do anything about about it to reverse the course of our own power. It's a dire situation that every single one of us is born into. And in the desert... God's kindness has come first. But God's people distrust him. And they long for the days of their slavery. They long for slave rations rather than to trust in the God who is and who will provide for them. So they talk about Moses and God like, you idiot, don't you get it? We don't want what you're offering. We want what we want. Yikes, right? But also, not so different from how we respond to God when the answer is no to would you like to go out on a date to can I have this job opportunity to can I have this thing or that thing these desires that we want to have when we get passed over when someone chooses to spend time with other people instead of with us when we are lonely you see it's not literal food and water we think that God is keeping from us but he, we think he's keeping something from us. And it reveals what we really think about God. When we respond this way, it reveals our rebellion. It reveals our sin. So God's people rebel against him. That's our second point. And again, if you're reading numbers uh, within the, the floor of the whole narrative, God's people rebel against him again. But that's more than I can talk about this morning. So let's move on to the next point. So back in Genesis 3, the moment that Adam decided to believe the lie of the serpent instead of believing God was the moment that sin took root. Eating the fruit was the outward fulfillment of what had began in his heart. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is from Romans 5, verse 12, where the apostle Paul would unpack the consequences of sin. So this time, though, the serpent hasn't come the same way, but instead the serpent shows up as a consequence of the people's rebellion. I can't believe I'm about to use another Indiana Jones illustration after last time I was here, and I used an Indiana Jones illustration, but bear with me. I have more in my kit than Indiana Jones, but I just wanted to acknowledge it, okay? So y'all remember Indiana Jones, right? You were as a kid. I cannot believe that I was probably eight Years old when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark with that horrible ending sequence. It's super violent. Like, can you, y'all remember that? That's PG. Anyway, that's a sidebar. Um, so you remember that snakes are a big deal for Indiana Jones, right? And and snakes over the course of history hold this legendary kind of mythic status in world religions and faiths, right? And uh, for some, it's just a phobia, and others they are literally worshipped. Okay, so. There's that scene in the first Indiana Jones movie where he looks down in that pit and he says the line, right? Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Right? You remember that. And uh, God's people have a few points of connection to snakes in this story. Right? There's, of course, the Genesis 3 connection. Right? The seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman will bruise or crush its head. The promise is given, and the picture of the enemy, the original enemy, reverberates here in this moment of Numbers 21. You can't avoid it. But there's also an Egyptian connection. Remember, they've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. and In Egypt, snakes had a prominent place within their polytheistic religion. Snakes were gods. The Nile was a god. The Pharaoh was a god. They had lots of gods, right? And then you might remember that there's this showdown between the court magicians and the Pharaoh, or of the Pharaoh and Moses and, Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron as they represented God before him. God tells Moses to have Aaron throw his staff down before the court magicians and that it will become a serpent. And so the court magicians respond by taking their staffs and they also turn their staffs into serpents. And then what happens is, again, this is a wild story, right? But the serpent that was formerly Aaron's staff eats the serpents that, were, that came from the staffs of the court magicians. So the story of this, remember this is God saying that your gods are not real gods, I'm the one true God. And this culture that worships serpents is seeing that the God of the Bible, who Aaron and Moses represent, is stronger than their gods. That's what we learn from that story, right? So it was a sign about who God is. He is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. Very important lesson for God's people then. And for us. But now with God's people, sin is killing them. It's killing them. But God is more powerful than their sin. Amen. Right? So God provides instruction again, but it's not just to the Egyptians who have rejected God this time. He's providing instruction to his own people who are rejecting him. So the Apostle Paul will summarize that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, verse 23. And so death comes to God's sinful people as a result of their rebellion. He does not wipe them out altogether. God has already promised not to wipe his people out back in the flood narrative with Noah. But the curse of sin still does its terrible work in their lives and in ours. So often, we're quick to downplay the seriousness of rebelling with our words against God, even if those words never come out of our mouth, but they are stirring in here. They're stirring in here. Theologians have said that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, first you break the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. The moment we think that there is someone or something greater than God and what he provides, we've broken the first commandment. So you see, it's not a small thing. It's very, very serious. So let's move on to the fourth point. What do we do? What then do we see God's people do when they realize that they have stepped in it and they are up to their necks in trouble now, okay? They do the sensible thing, which is they confess their sin and they cry out. Now, we don't have to guess how they understood the situation because the text tells us as it unfolds. They go to Moses and they confess, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And this is where light starts to break through kind of the dark clouds of this little short story, okay? Okay. Confession and crying out to God is the samest thing that any of us can do when we realize that we've sinned against God and our neighbors. It's the appropriate response. So God's people, realizing that suffering and death has come to visit them because of their sin, first acknowledge their part. The prayer goes something like, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. Not... Lord, have mercy on me. I've been complaining a lot less than them. Right? They ask Moses to intercede for them. Intercede is kind of a, a word we don't use all the time, right? But what does that mean? It's, they've asked Moses to go between God and them to make peace on their behalf, knowing that they themselves are not fit to appear before God. This is just what Jesus does for us. He also makes peace with God on our behalf as he intercedes even now for his people. The pattern, this pattern is the one that we still conform to. That's what we see happening with these people in the wilderness. We confess our sin and we ask God to save us. And in Jesus, we have assurance that he will. So let's move on to the fifth point. What happened next is no less wild than the rest of the story. God's people have rebelled against him. They've come to their senses, and they've confessed their sin, and they've cried out for help. The God of the universe is so creative in his response. He who made all things by the word of his power is able to remove the serpents, the venom, all of it with a word. He can do that. But you notice he chooses not to do that, because he's not about cheap fixes that are not going to actually deal with the problem and get the job done. No, instead, God prepares his people for glory and salvation that is yet to come in history. He invites his people to respond to him in faith in order to find relief. And God prescribes healing in ways that seem pretty strange to us sometimes. It says in our text, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I want you to think about that for a second. Alright? People are getting bitten, probably miserable from the effects of these snake bites. And... I wonder how long it takes to cast something out of bronze at this stage of history. I don't know how long it takes to cast something out of bronze, but I bet it's not microwave speed. It's probably slow cooker speed, okay? So people are suffering and dying from these bites. And God can make it all stop instantly, but he doesn't. Not only that, the means to receive healing is, get this, to look at the thing that's killing you. That's strong medicine. I don't think you hear me. That is strong medicine. Sin has showed up dramatically as snakes here. And there will be no going around the reason that they're crying out in the first place. They can't ask for God to fix it their way. There's what God provides, or there's death, and that's it. You know this story shows up in the New Testament because we, we just heard it in our prayer time and reading, right? Well, I'm sure that uh, some of you all have, like, Bible verses that even if you can't recite them word for word, like, there's a bunch that, like, you know the street address, right? You know, whether that's Psalm 23, you know, uh, you know Romans 8.28, well, Philippians 1.6. Like, there's, like, the little quick, like, memory verses that we like to pull out that are, like, you know, we have those in our pocket. But one of the ones that I bet even like some of the most unchurched people recognizes, even if they, don't, they can't quote it, they've seen John 3.16, right? They've seen it written on dudes' chess at sporting events. They've seen it on posters, right? They've seen it on bumper stickers. And of course, everyone knows that that passage says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But I don't think that as many of us, whenever we see John 3.16, think about the verses that precede that we heard read this morning. We don't think about that story of Nicodemus the Pharisee interacting with Jesus by night. I'm going to reread verses 14 and 15 from John 3 again. Where it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world and following. Right? That's how that flows together. And whenever we see in the Gospel of John that Jesus will be lifted up, it's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the manner in which he will die. So follow me here. The object of their suffering, sin, represented in the form of a snake, was the very thing that they had to look at in order to be saved. Buckle up. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became your greed. Jesus Christ became your gossip. Jesus Christ became your lies. Jesus Christ became your addictions. Jesus Christ became your hatred of your neighbor. And there was no sin in him of himself. He took our sin upon himself and he was lifted up for us to look at. There's no going around it. There's no, God, deliver me from my pain, deliver me from my frustration without dealing with the source of it, sin in the world. And he did that to take it away from us. The way we get access to healing is parallel to what the Israelites had in the desert. We have to look at our sin, we have to stare it in the face and deal with it honestly. We had to see that God had to intervene to keep it from destroying us. See that in Christ, God has taken the death that we deserved upon himself. Glory. He calls us to respond, to believe in what he's done. The Israelites who were bitten uh, probably knew of ancient medicine. Ancient medicine's been around a long time. So I imagine some of them were like, hey, get some herbs, boil them up, crush them up, whatever. I don't know what Moses is doing over there with the staff, but desert arts and crafts don't seem like the way to fix this right now. Right? I have poison in my veins right now, and you want me to look at this thing you made? Are you serious? I imagine some of them might have felt like that. So it was an act of faith to obey what God had called them to do, to trust him again, that he would provide the very thing that they need. God wanted them to worry less about how he was going to intervene and save them, but to think more about who it was who has promised to intervene and save them. And he wants the same for us today. We may come up with our own prescription. For what we expect God to do to fix our problems. God, if you just give me this, everything will be fine. I don't, care about, I don't care about anything else. Just God, give me this thing. This is what I need. And so we become really concerned about God meeting us on our terms. Will we consider meeting him on his terms instead? Meet God on his terms and live and be free I wish I had time to tell you more about how this this same bronze serpent shows up in 2 Kings 18, verses 1-4. through The same bronze serpent shows up amongst God's people, and they have made an idol out of it. Instead of worshiping the God who provided this gift to them as a sign, now they've worshiped the gift instead of the giver. And I'm sure that maybe we can relate to that, but I don't have time to unpack that today. So let's wrap this up. I hope you're at least starting to see how we aren't so different from the Israelites in this story. Their unbelief, their rebellion is not so foreign to our unbelief and our rebellion. The same God who provided the thing they needed is the same God that we look to today in Jesus Christ. How quickly we forget important things about God and his character. It's almost is if God provides for us a little bit like that manna that he provided in the wilderness. A funny thing about the manna is, is that if you tried to live off of yesterday's supply, it went rancid. You had to get it every day. And I think sometimes, I don't know if it's the American spirit or what, like we like to feel like I want to get to a place where maybe I don't need God every day. Like it's nice. Like he's a nice ornament to what I'm doing. But like I got it. Like I'm sufficient. I'm strong. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, my meritocracy, my achievements. And I'm pretty much good. Like God, you're fine when you show up and I really need you. But like, you know, whatever. I think sometimes we, we, we think that's where maturity leads us to. But that's the total opposite picture of what the Bible paints for us for maturity. The picture the Bible paints for us is you must abide in Him. That you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must be reborn. And the old must pass away and the new must come. And He must abide in you daily and you in Him daily. That's That's the picture. This is how we end up complaining when we lose sight of this. This is why that song starts to play in the back of our head. What have you done for me lately? Squash that when that comes up with the gospel. Don't you care about what I want today? That wells up in us. And God in his mercy doesn't send literal snakes to us, at least not ordinarily. Though I'm sure there are exceptions that I bet one of you probably has a story in your pocket but he does let us experience the consequences often of our rebellion and our sin. He may let us experience broken hearts. He may let us experience broken relationships, broken dreams. Yes, broken bodies. But in his mercy, he brings us back to our senses at the cross on which he provided his own son to be lifted up in our place. We too are called to look to him in faith, to be healed from the power and the corruption of sin that you and I of our flesh do not have the resources to defeat on our own. God must intervene and we must cry out in faith and look to him in faith and find him there. As, the, as one of the old churchism goes, uh, God might not give you what you want, but he'll always give you what you need. It's one of those phrases that's out there, okay? It is because God has given us his only son to meet our deepest need that we should look to Jesus Christ in faith. That's where all this is going this morning. So are you puzzled like Nicodemus at what God has provided today? Are you confessing and crying out like God's people that that he would deliver them? No matter where you find yourself, receive this invitation. Seek and find what you need in Christ. He who knew no sin was lifted up and became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So may we look to Christ
0: in faith. Let's pray.
1: God, your creativity astounds me when I think about it. How in my simple mind I would want to do something that I think is more direct, more practical, and all of my supposed wisdom is foolishness. And so, Lord, we look at this story of how you delivered your people from their sin again in this story of Numbers 21 and how you sent your son as the greater uh, one to be lifted up and to be looked to in faith, to deliver us from our corruption, to deliver us from our sin, to give us hope for the restoration of the whole world, Lord. It, it it it. I almost can't even pray. It leaves me almost speechless. So Lord, you do perfect our prayers and you intercede for us even now, and I trust that you're doing that even for me. So God, I ask that you would bless us as we go, as we get ready to go our separate ways on this Sunday that we would look at our sin squarely in the face and that we would see how helpless we are to defeat it of our own power and we would do the samest thing possible which is to cry out to you and to turn to you in repentance with contrite hearts. So Lord, we cannot do this without your Holy Spirit working in us, so Holy Spirit, come. Move in your hearts of the people that you have claimed to yourself Make us more like Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.